It's also the first time that Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse were ever on screen together, but they both had to be on screen for the exact same amount of time. Oh, it sounds like those contracts that like action movie stars like Vin Diesel have was like, I cannot be beaten by The Rock. I have to beat The Rock in every fight that we get into. <laughs> so essentially Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse are the Vin Diesel and The Rock of the animation world. I think you're bang on. Hello and welcome to the Big Film Buffet. I'm the Big Film Buff Alexi Toliopoulos and I would consider myself a great film lover. And I'm Susie Youssef and I would consider myself a great lover of films. But you don't need to be a big film buff. Or a great lover. To enjoy the delights that this podcast offers. Each episode we'll be sharing with you a three-course feast of movies inspired by this week's Netflix premiere film. We'll roll up today with a classic startup. And we'll cut to a dessert of recommendations. And for our main course, the latest from David Fincher, Mank. Today we're talking filmmaking and films about filmmaking. It's both the magic of the movies and a peek behind the curtain of Hollywood. And it's just a great excuse for us to dust off one of our favourite VHS tapes from 1988 and watch the classic toon thriller, our starter for today, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Drink the drink! But I don't want the drink! He doesn't want the drink! He does! I don't! You do! I don't! You do! I don't! You do! I don't! You don't! I do! Hollywood, 1947. Hard-boiled private investigator Eddie Valiant is hired by a movie studio mogul to spy on a wife suspected of playing patty cake behind the back of her husband, one of the biggest stars in Hollywood, Roger Rabbit, who soon becomes the prime suspect in a murder. (laughs) Susie, this is one of the most exciting movies of all time for me. This is such an iconic classic. It's an unbelievable technical achievement. It's one of the only collaborations of screen icons, Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny. It's the definition of the magic of the motion pictures and a childhood favourite for all. But truly, it's also one of the horniest films ever made. (laughs) Jessica Rabbit, voiced by Kathleen Turner, went from silver screen star to freight truck mud flap pinup instantly. I don't know what's sexier, the animation of Jessica Rabbit or the voice of Kathleen Turner, but the combination of the two... (laughs) Wow, okay. I'm trying to think of a different way of saying boner maker. Well, earlier you did say Stiffy Supplier, (laughs) which I did love. I don't want to put my name to that. Why? I was so proud of you. I know that you were. (laughs) Well, speaking of, I actually have a fun fact about Jessica Rabbit's bosom. But we are going to save that fun fact about Jessica Rabbit's bosom for our sealed section, which you can get at the end of the podcast. It's too cheeky for this part of the podcast. Yes, it is. Look, if there is an opposite to a stiffy supplier, which I'm sure that there is, it's a spectrum of sorts, then it has to be the villain of this film. So Judge Doom is played by Christopher Lloyd, and I think that he has to be one of the most menacing creations ever to be seen on screen. That black trench coat, the cold, Mm. dead shark eyes of Christopher Lloyd, haunting my dreams since... Probably the late 80s. It truly is one of the great villain performances of all time. And I think it's kind of because Christopher Lloyd had already worked with director Robert Zemeckis on the Back to the Future trilogy. So I think he's kind of bringing this new energy. He knows how to play with his actor and make him do something completely wacko while still utilising the same kind of persona techniques that he really can bring to a performance. Well, that's funny you should say that because apparently Tim Curry auditioned for the role. I think he would have been scarier. I, Mm. I think he would have been too scary. 
scary for this movie. Just thinking about it is making me shudder. He's a level of terrifying that is a step too far for Who Framed Roger Rabbit because you have to remember that it wasn't just Christopher Lloyd playing oh, the villain character. He yes. was also followed around by those awful slinky weasels Ooh. that drive the black car around. Oh, it's just awful. It's, it's, it's the right level of nightmare, but it's still terrifying. <laughs> it still will get you. It'll still haunt you. Well, everyone knows this movie. Everybody knows Who Framed Roger Rabbit. It's so deeply beloved. But it's so interesting to go back to it now as an adult and someone who's watched so many more movies. You kind of go back with this newfound respect with how truly astonishing it is and how well-crafted and how well-made it is by just, like, the sheer audacity that it pulls this crazy trick off of believing that these two-dimensional characters live in a three-dimensional world. It's also the first time that Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse were ever on screen together in the same film. And it's because the EP, who was uh, a little guy called Steven Spielberg, not sure if you've heard of him <laughs> I actually have heard of him. He's one of the most renowned and famous filmmakers of all time. <laughs> well, he was able to negotiate the deal, but they both had to be on screen for the exact same amount of time. Ooh, it sounds like those contracts that like action movie stars like Vin Diesel have was like, I cannot be beaten by The Rock. I have to beat The Rock in every fight that we get into. <laughs> I just heard about these contracts. So essentially Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse are the Vin Diesel and The Rock of the anime. I think you're back on. Do you mean to tell me that you could have taken your hand out of that cuff at any time? No, not at any time. Only when it was funny. <laughs> In my opinion, and it's not humble, it is astute, Bob Hoskins <laughs> gives the single most impressive and greatest screen performance in cinema. I think we need a sound effect for when you're about to make a big call. <laughs> I want to just be able to hit a button when I see you start to get worked up. Well, it's going to bleep out the whole podcast if you do that. <laughs> it's an incredibly technical performance and it's also so physical. Like the respect that he gives to his Toon co-stars grounds this high concept film. He makes everything believable, which is just such a spectacular feat in a film like this. I think... In modern blockbuster filmmaking where so many stars act opposite tennis balls representing <laughs> yeah, yeah. like CG inserts, that's so commonplace now and he really broke the ground for what that would be. But I actually don't think anyone has really been able to match what he did in this film. There's something about Bob Hoskins that's really warm. Like I feel like he's the kind of dude that I would love in real life. <sighs> and I also feel like I know him. Absolutely. I think it's because of films like Hook that mm. you grew up with and that you love, films like Mermaids. Even the film Mrs Henderson that he did with Judy Dench yes. just got me. I love him. I think he looks kind and I love him as a performer. He is one of my absolute favourite guys. Like I, I adore his work. He has like this diverse career of roles from stuff like this to gangster to movies in the 70s and 80s and then wacko stuff like Mario from the Mario yeah. Brothers movie but he's able to bring his integrity to make all of those roles work for what they are in the film. And I think he makes his co-stars look really good. Absolutely, which is one of my more favourite things about this movie is actor-comedian Charles Fleischer plays Roger Rabbit in this movie. He came to set every single day dressed oh, no. in a custom-made Roger Rabbit costume. That's so creepy. And he never stands in for Roger. He's always behind the camera just supplying his lines. So if you watch any of the behind-the-scenes footage stuff for this movie, you'll see a man who's nearly 40 years old wearing a Roger Rabbit costume, <laughs> and that is Charles Fleischer. Did he need to wear it? I would say no. No, he didn't need to wear it. But did it help his performance? Also, probably no. Maybe not, yeah, because I don't think they would have recorded his lines there on the set. No way. But did it help Bob Hoskins into the world of the film? Truly, I hope so. 
<laughs> I really do think, Susie, that there's not a better example of movie magic than this film because everything it does is in an effort to convince you something that is complete fantasy and completely surreal and unreal is something real and tangible. And the way that they did this is kind of astonishing. The, it, it would be like impossible to make, really, if it wasn't like m- big movie maniacs like Steven Spielberg and Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale behind this film. But it's so difficult to like rotoscope animation over film. And traditionally, it would just be over a still frame of like the camera not moving around to make it work. But the camera in this movie constantly moves. It's constantly panning around. It's constantly doing tracking shots and so animators had to painstakingly create these characters to feel 3D and change the angle to go along with the camera to make sure shadows fell in the right place and to this day you watch it and the fact that you're not conscious of those things yeah it's amazing it's what makes it work because it just they did everything to make you buy how real something imaginary can be it's technically so beautifully done but i have to say re-watching it as an adult i was like this is the messiest freaking movie i have ever seen it's so loud it's so squeaky it's so like it's so complicated as well so complicated and like you said there's Almost every frame of the film has an animated character, which means that they were hand painting mm-hmm. this animation onto photographs. That's how they made it. Yeah, over photographs and then translating that onto the film itself. It's, it's wild. It's amazing. It's almost impossible to remember watching this movie as a kid because of how crazy the plot is, because it is mainly about trying to build a highway through Toontown oh, yeah. and the corruption of Hollywood. It's totally about the corruption of Hollywood, but the love story is very real. And at the end, when you're watching the lovers hanging above the vat <laughs> of dip, you're like, no, you're completely invested. Well, speaking of all that Hollywood corruption behind the scenes spilling into the city itself, I think it brings us nicely to the movie that inspired us to come here today to our Mank course. I'm talking, of course, of Mank. Please call me Mank. 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 Mank is a snapshot of 1930s Hollywood through the eyes of Herman J. Mankiewicz as he races to finish the screenplay for Citizen Kane. Gary Oldman as Herman J. Mankiewicz, Amanda Seyfried as Marion Davis, Lily Collins as Rita Alexander. And also as Phil Collins' daughter. And also as Emily in Paris. <laughs> Mank follows a tradition of films that have an outsider on the inside of Hollywood. The world of Hollywood and filmmaking at large has a great tradition of looking inwards and making self-reflective films that really celebrate the history of cinema and the tenacity it takes to achieve the ambitions of art making. And that's exactly what this film does, while also showing us kind of like these weird insides of what's going on at Hollywood during this time that informs a story of Citizen Kane. You can't talk about Mank without talking about Citizen Kane. And for those of us who did not go to film school, talk to me about Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane has kind of become this weird, amorphous thing where it's known as the greatest movie of all time. It tops all those lists by critics and filmmakers as the greatest film of all time, and it's become known as this masterpiece. I think that really turns people off it because you go in with all these expectations of what it's going to be and how can it possibly ever live up to them. 
I don't even know how many people have actually watched Citizen Kane. I think it would have to be one of those movies that people pretend to have seen the most. Oh, without a doubt. And I have to be honest, I have always found it really hard to actually watch Citizen Kane from beginning to end. I think I've started it maybe six times Mm. and only watched it through to the end once because it's one of those movies where it's of its time. It's a film that doesn't have the same pace of movies Mm. of today. So when you're going back and watching the classics, it's really hard to shift your expectation. Totally. And I think that with something as big and as powerful as Citizen Kane, it really does set up a lot of the techniques that are now common in movie making. But I have to ask, why is it known as a masterpiece? I think it's an amazing story and I think that the script writing is incredible, but why? I would say it's like a combination of all of those things. Like it's the great script that is like kind of like this new form of storytelling as well, where there's like a mystery in it that is kind of slowly revealed without even telling you, hey, there's a mystery behind this. And it's like this personal exploration, it's this character study, but also it has like really revolutionary film techniques with like cinematography, the way that it uses dissolves, the way that it tells a story visually is all at that time, very new and cutting edge way of filmmaking and beyond all that it's the Orson Welles thing Orson Welles was like this wunderkind prodigy when it comes to storytelling he started out in theater he started out in radio plays with that crazy H.G. Wells adaptation of War of the Worlds which is now one of those most iconic moments of pop culture history this was his first film and he was in his 20s when he made it, he co-wrote it. Apparently, this movie says I was. Uh, but he directed it and he stars in it and he plays a man throughout his entire life. So even the performance is really well-renowned that he's playing someone from a young man right up until their death. And when you watch it, you kind of do believe it. The makeup is still quite good to watch now in the 21st century. Okay, fine. All of your points add up. And now I understand the hype behind Citizen Kane. But I actually have to say (laughs) watching Mank made me appreciate Citizen Kane so much more. I actually think Mank really does a huge favour for Citizen Kane because it kind of lifts that curse that it has of being known as the greatest film of all time. Yeah, it does that thing that The Wizard of Oz does. You kind of see the man behind the curtain mm. and it's not as scary anymore. It's not as mythical anymore. It's just grounds the whole story once again. Yeah, as well. Funny you mention that because Herman Mankiewicz also wrote The Wizard of Oz. Oh, Alexi, I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's true because it kind of takes away that auteurist myth yeah, that exactly. Orson Welles brought this film out of the depths of his soul. And it's like, oh, no, Herman Mankiewicz wrote it and it's based on real people that he knew, it makes everything real again and shows that there are real people that make these works of art that become iconic. I just saw 42nd Street. It blew my wig. You could take the girl out of bed stuff. When was that? Over the weekend. You were in D.C. I went to the pictures in Santa Barbara. We have a fine screening room. Here, Warner's picture. Why waste money on that? The screenplay for Mank was written by David Fincher's father, Jack Fincher, who himself was a writer and journalist who tragically passed away in 2003. And bringing the script to life has been on Fincher's dance card since the 1990s. Man, that's a lot of pressure. Absolutely. Jack Fincher started the screenplay after retiring from magazine writing, and David Fincher was just about to start his own career in feature film directing with Alien 3. Wow. Only now is he able to go back and make Mank. 
And the screenplay really is something special. Oh, it's excellent writing. It is such funny writing. And it also replicates that old school Hollywood wit. Like it feels very authentic Mm. to that time. The way that they used to swear and kind of try and offend each other in the most intelligent way with the highest witticisms. Mm. I absolutely love that sense of humour. And you get to see it not only from the male characters in the movie but from the female characters, which I think Mm. that old school Hollywood did in a really great way. You kind of see it with Gene Arthur in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. They're these real... Really sassy, yes. smart broads that know how to turn a phrase. I'm going riding. Haven't seen a horse's face in years. Oh, and one last thing, Herman. I don't want nobody calling me poor Sarah no more. David Fincher is famously a 200-take director. What? It's like this Kubrickian ideal where some directors believe that you don't become authentic until like take until 180. You go mad. Yeah, basically, because then all the artifice of acting like drips away. And Fincher talks about it openly that this is how he works now. And then it's so interesting hearing the actors talk about it because Amanda Seyfried was saying like it was the hardest she's ever worked, but how rewarding and how valuable it was to work with this director and all these great actors. I think that would drive me nuts. <laughs> and he's also very particular about the way he does things. Like Gary Oldman really stands out in this movie. He's known now with this reputation of being one of the great modern chameleonic actors that can really escape and lose himself into a role. And often that's because he's like very in heavy prosthetics to yeah, bring... he loves the makeup. He loves the makeup to bring, like, these biographical characters, these real people to life and transform into them. And he kind of does it from the outside in. In this movie, Fincher requested for Gary au natural, apparently. Oh, no That's a quote. He didn't want any makeup and he wanted him to find the character. So Gary Oldman was, like, really nervous about making this movie because he was being restricted from his usual set of tricks. And what he pulls off is something really phenomenal because, you know, we don't need him to look like Herman Mankiewicz because I don't even know what Herman Mankiewicz looks like. (laughs) I've watched like six documentaries on Citizen Kane. But you really believe him. You don't need my donation. You don't need anybody's. You have everything it takes right here. Meaning? Meaning you can make the world swear if King Kong is 10 stars tall and Mary Pickford a virgin of 40. Yet you can't convince starving voters that a turncoat socialist is a menace to everything Californians. Oh, dear. You're barely trying. I have to say as well that because it's in black and white, it kind of feels bolder and I think that the lighting in this is spectacular. Mm. There were so many times where I actually paused the film and took a photo of the screen because it looked like a painting. And this isn't the first time he's worked in black and white. He actually has maybe a film more iconic than all his other works. And the film I'm talking about is the video clip for Madonna's Vogue. He made that? He made that. Wow. And I would say it's his best work. (laughs) (laughs) That actually sounds like a negative, but I love that video clip and I love that song. Oh, it's iconic. Well, what can I tell you, Mank? Mary and Doris went to convent school. Amanda Seyfried steals this flick. Yeah, she is really perfect for this character. She looks like a modern version of Marion Davies herself. She is absolutely gorgeous in it. She has nailed the entire Hollywood mm. old school walk and talk absolutely. vibe. I loved her in Mean Girls. It's obviously a very different character to absolutely. what she's playing in Mank. But it's a great performance. It's a great performance and she's a very eclectic performer. But yes. this was on point for the role. Absolutely. I think she's phenomenal in this film. 
and it will be a crime against humanity if she doesn't get an Oscar nomination. She totally should. Well, I read the script. Who hasn't? It's very grand, Mank, in its own way, and very much you. I would have loved to play me 10 years ago. It was never meant to be you. For myself, I don't care, Mank. Really, I don't. Let's talk about the structure of this movie because it really is so elliptical, jumping back and forth between flashbacks and present day. It kind of does mirror the structure of Citizen Kane itself. And last week I asked you about timelines and time kind of jumps and transitions in movies, and that was for Hillbilly Elegy. But here we have it in a very apt transition. Fincher uses that kind of typewriter Mm. transition where he literally spells out the location and the date, which is really helpful for people who find it difficult to follow movies. But he does it just like you would in a script or the way that a typewriter would type it out for a script. And I found that kind of really sweet and delightful because this movie is about the making of one of those iconic screenplays about an iconic screenwriter that it's just like a nice little touch. It feels like it's in the mind of Mankiewicz himself. I love that David Fincher is directing this because here it is. Here's my hot take. Oh, where is that button? Get that button loaded up. (laughs) (laughs) The social network is our generation's Citizen Kane. Big call. It's a big call, but I think it's really on point, and I am going to congratulate myself about it. Congratulations. I will congratulate you also, but please break it down for me. Okay, number one, David Fincher also directed The Social Network. Okay. I would say number two is Citizen Kane, Charles Foster Kane, is basically based on William Randolph Hearst, who was this media mogul in the early days. And I would say that the equivalent of like a media mogul is a social media oligarch. And who is the example of that in this world? Other than the Zuck himself, Mark Zuckerberg. Okay. And it's also wild to see in Mank, like how much social currency it has, talking about these ideas of fake news and manipulated news it's really fascinating especially when you think that this movie was written 30 years ago but now it feels like it's speaking to the modern day i don't even know if this makes sense but what i'm hearing from you is that the social network is this generation citizen kane which yes. means that there'll be a remake of mank in mm-hmm. like 50 years that'll be called zuck based on <laughs> mark zuckerberg's life or sork based on aaron sorkin's life. i don't know what the, what mm-hmm. it actually is but i feel like that's what you're edging towards yes and i'm going to be one to do it <laughs> I'm announcing right now that I'm making Zuck, and it's going to be completely in digital photography. I'm going to shoot it on an iPhone in Facebook video. (laughs) Susie, I want to hear your final thoughts in this movie, but I'm going to pose this question to you in the form of a poem. I'm ready. Be honest with me. Did you think Mank stank? Or high up in films of David Fincher, does this film rank? (laughs) Um, I'm not going to answer you in in poetry, but I will say I think this is a very film buff film, Mm -hmm. and at the same time... For me, it made me really nostalgic for black and white cinema. And I think for anyone who just kind of misses old school Hollywood or misses kind of parties and travel in general, you will love The Escape of Mank. And if you are a film buff, you're going to absolutely adore Mank like I did. Oh, yeah, you're going to mank off on this. (laughs) (laughs) I would say that it does rank high up in my Fincher films. I would put it near the top with Zodiac, The Social Network, Seven, Alien 3, um, Fight Club, also another movie that he's made called (laughs) Vogue with Stars Madonna. (laughs) So in conclusion, Mank Don't Stank. Mank Don't Stank. It's so good. You'll fill up the whole tank. I don't know what that means, but I like that it rhymes. (laughs) 
Say, kid, why not follow the Big Film Buffet on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts? And send us a comment or a telegram. Rate us, review us, tell your friends, call your grandma. Send us your love and we'll love you right back with a new app every Tuesday. We have come to that time in our feast where we must cleanse our palates by playing a little game called Film or Movie. We are joined in the room by producer Michael. Now, this game, Alexi, is best described by you because I stuff it up every time I try to. <laughs> well, producer Michael here will give us the title of a motion picture and we must debate whether it is a film or a movie. Now, a movie is something that comforts you. It's delightful. It's popcorn. It's escapist joy and escapist fare and escapist freedom. And the m- film, on the other hand, is all about art. It is all about the human soul. It is all about the human mind and the human brain and and the human experience human experience <laughs> what do <have> you got <laughs> <laughs> this week it's a motion picture about other motion pictures <gasps> it's la la land wow oh. the city of stars and the city of dreams how do you feel about this motion picture, Alexi Toliopoulos? I love this one. Um, I, well, we actually both really loved this. Mm, it's true, we do. I remember getting dragged for this when it came out because I freaking loved it. Oh, I saw it twice at the cinema and I feel very embarrassed to say that. I saw it once at a preview with my friend. The next day we looked up if there were more previews and we went again two days oh, in a row. It feels so much better. It is a film. It is all about love and how it tears you apart when you lose it and when you find it, how your heart must burst with song. Songs and musics is a language of love. <laughs> musics, all of them? All of musics <laughs> is the language of love. And La La Land is a translation of that language into the modern day. A language that has not been spoken so beautifully and so soulfully since the 1940s, 50s and 60s when musicals were common, common back in the day. Now they come sprinkling through like a city of stars, twinkling like dreams from a bygone era. This is film, baby. I'm crying. <laughs> a compelling argument, Alexi Toliopoulos. You always would an argument if you cry. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I don't really want to crush all of your dreams here, but I do feel like a movie whose box office is over $440 million. <laughs> Look, it's a movie but in the best possible way. Mm, yes. It's Ryan Gosling, it's Emma Stone, it's John Legend. It is... My favourite movie star, John Legend. Your favourite movie star, John Legend. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fine. It's not up to me. They Producer Michael, your judgment, please. Look, it's pretty hard to say, but I reckon La La Land is... No, sorry, wait. There's been a mistake. Moonlight is a film. <laughs> <laughs> if you are loving our chat about films on Films on Films, then you are going to want a little bit more, and we've got it for you right here with our dessert of the day. It is the Netflix original documentary, Shirkers. Give us the material so we can finish the film. How could it have disappeared? What stakes did he have in this mind game? In 1992, Sandy Tan and her friends shot a quirky film on the streets of Singapore. Then the footage disappeared, sending her on a hunt for answers. This is a really special film to me. It's like a true crime documentary without the crime. Instead, it's about art and a lost film directed by a prodigious young person. It really inspirationally captures the beauty of collaboration and filmmaking and the cancerous nature of those that take energy rather than give it. I don't think I can fully put into words how wonderful this memoir mystery documentary really is. 
these themes of the first burst of creativity or difficult or unconventional collaboration or an outsider art are the same ideas that I'm fascinated by and explore in my own documentary work, or albeit in a much goofier way. This is one of those documentaries that you stumble across on Netflix and you're so glad that you did. Sometimes it's really hard to sort through and find mm. those like absolute golden films, but this is one of them for This me. is such a hidden gem that I, I cannot recommend it enough. I really adore this film. I remember back in 2018, when this film first came out and heard about it coming out on Netflix, I had literally the same hour put together my best of 2018 list and chucked it up on all my socials. And I was like, oh, well, what am I going to do now? I'm going to watch a movie. I'll put Shirkers on. And then immediately I'm like, I have to rescind my list. This is number one. This is number one. This is such a cool movie. Susie, you just watched it for the first time. How do you feel about it? I adored this film. I absolutely love the aesthetic of this Oof. film. I mean, I think that the the actual topic is obviously so intriguing mm-hmm. and exciting and really fresh and a different take. And I think centering on female filmmaking really appeals to me personally. Absolutely. But there's something about this. It's kind of the antithesis of everything that we've spoken about today. So mm. it is it is this saturated with colour film. It's so sweaty and Singaporean. It's like this anarchist film. You can hear it in my voice. I'm so excited by this sort of filmmaking. It's a really exciting film that still centres on kind of the censorship and the, and the fraud and greed of the industry, but in a really different way. And I think for any filmmaker, you have to watch it. Absolutely. I adore that kind of mixed media feeling of seeing what the old film that went missing looks like and then interspersed with like modern day footage as well it's so exciting it's a must watch and if you need a little bit more there's so many great movies about movies of course you've got ed wood which is also a big orson wells inspired thing it's about ed wood who made very 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 bad movies in the 1940s and 50s but it's also about like the tenacity of trying to make something then you've got bowfinger which i think is one of the funniest comedies ever frank oz steve martin eddie murphy twice and then the classic film noir, Sunset Boulevard, is the exploration of the underworld of the forgotten stars of old Hollywood. And if you want to feel the joy of movies, if you want to have that kind of celebration of the magic of movie making, then you can't go past Singing in the Rain. Gene Kelly, Debbie Reynolds, Donald O'Connor, I'm happy just thinking about it. Oh, it's one of the greats. What a wonderful feast we've had today. We started out looking at Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Our main course that fed us so well was Mank and for dessert we had the truly spectacular Shirkers. And there's only one way to describe that episode. Awesome Wells. Well, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, if you want to hear more from me, you can head over to Total Reboot and listen to me talk about reboots, remakes and rip-offs with Cameron James. And if you want to hear more from us, Alexi Toliopoulos and myself, Suzy Yusuf, (laughs) then why not join us next week when we watch The Prom with special guest, comedian Reese Nicholson. (gasps) I love Reese. I love Reese so much. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alexi Toliopoulos, and my dear friend, Susie Youssef. Produced by Michael Sun and Anu Hasbold. Edited by Jeffrey O'Connor. And executive produced by Tony Broderick and Melanie Martin. If you're still listening, then this is the sealed section. I'm going to tell you this fun fact I found about IMDb that is really the horniest part of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. It feels so rude.
This is for this is so rude. This is not for anyone else's ears. To give Jessica's ample bosom an unusual bounce, her supervising animator Russell Hall reversed the natural up-down movements of her breasts as she walked. They bounce up when a real woman's breasts bounce down, and vice versa. What does that even mean? It means some nerd reversed the trajectory of boobs to make them even more sensual. <laughs> <laughs>